It's Wednesday, December the 2nd, 2020, and welcome to Asia Pacific Today. I'm Mike Ryan. Today, Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation looks at how Joe Biden's climate change policies impact Australia and the global community. Joe Biden has a vigorous social engineering agenda, which also means that taxes are on the table. Blake Christian from accounting firm Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite joins us again and offers his take on what the Biden administration will do with taxes. And we're joined by Dr. Manoj Joshi, a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. Dr. Joshi recently wrote about Biden's China policy and the direction it may take. The Trump administration and the Biden administration are like chalk and cheese. Trump exits the Paris Agreement and Biden has vowed to rejoin the Paris Agreement on his first day in office. Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation is joining us to talk about that and other wonderful things connected to the Joe Biden uh, dynasty. Uh, Malcolm, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure. But I, I want to be addressed by my correct title, please. <laughs> President-elect Senator Malcolm Roberts. Sorry. It seems the president-elect can be hung on anyone today by themselves it's, because uh, well, Joe you... Biden's doing it and he's created the facade behind him. Well, um, and it's nonsense. Yeah, well, you can get that president-elect. Apparently, uh, Disney are bringing that out. And um, or in Wheaties, a little thing, and you scratch it, and you're a president-elect of some country. And uh, in your case, you're president-elect of Queensland. How does that feel? That sounds great. That sounds really handy. And, we, you know, the winning, winning um, state of origin team, that, that, that's great. And But see, the thing is, if you're naughty, you become president-elect of the... Uh, United Nations, uh, the World uh, the World Health Organization. I mean, that's if you're naughty. But at the moment, you've won the prize. You are now president-elect of Queensland. Now, there are a lot of naughty people around who are being rewarded because they get more power. They are, and it's very scary. The Great Reset, which we can talk about that. Uh, what do we know about a Biden presidency that will bring in terms of, say, uh, climate change policy? We know it's fairly uh, wacko, to say the least, but... What do you think will happen? Well, he believes in the climate con. Oh, sorry, he says he believes in the climate con. So they'll be pushing that climate policy. They're, they'll be back into the Paris Agreement, uh, back in the UN's Paris Agreement. He'll be, he has appointed um, the climate czar, uh, John Kerry, who is a is a failed politician, failed presidential candidate, I believe. And also he is another con man who has got no evidence to back up his position. And he is also another con man like Al Gore in that he's very, very rich and he's been he's made been made rich uh, by the by. Well, and, and sorry, I'm, about, I'm wrong there. Um, John Kerry has not been made rich by the climate con like Al Gore. Uh, John Kerry inherited wealth through the Heinz family, I believe. But th- that's that's where he'll be taking us um, uh, back to the Obama Obama years of destroying America. America will be going downhill. Trump reversed that and, and brought American economy back. Trump will Trump has reduced electricity prices and energy prices because he's encouraged fracking, encouraged American exploration for hydrocarbons. Uh, um, Biden will reverse that. So we'll be having dishonest government again. We'll be having the UN in control. We'll be having the climate con in control. We'll be having the globalist agenda take over the United States again. We'll be having socialism ramped up after Trump has just rescued the United States, it'll be destroyed again. Tell us more about this global reset. You know, it's been floating around a bit, but the uh, mainstream media, yeah, don't want to talk about that, but the global reset that the richest men and politicians, say from Trudeau to Boris Johnson, are advocating. And let me first of all say that Boris Johnson, what a disappointment he's become. Very much a disappointment. He's a globalist, well and truly. He's mm. pushing now the climate stuff. Uh, the climate con. He's, he's uh, still strong on, on immigration and borders, but the rest of it, he's following the agenda. Hey, get this. He even uh, gave, handed an award to uh, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, recently for Scott Morrison's contribution to the global agenda. They weren't the words. I can't remember the exact mm. words, but that's basically what it was. Um, you know, I, I just um, I made a couple of notes here because I've got a quote from Dillingpole, British Journalist Dillingpole, James Dillingpole, very respected journalist, on the ball, 
and he's got the guts to say what's really happening. And he's defined it as, as this. Put simply, the Great Reset is the blueprint for a complete transformation of the world economy. There will be no money, no private property, no democracy. Instead, every key decision, that means what you do for a living, how much stuff you consume, whether you can take a vacation, will be decided for you by a remote, unaccountable elite of experts. Now, some people, Mike, said this is fanciful. It's, it's nuts, nut job stuff. It's not. We know that history is littered with the attempts by uh, sometimes loony people, sometimes sane people, sometimes people who've become corrupted by their own egos to control the world. Genghis Khan, Hitler, Lenin. Um, we've even had Morris Strong, who I bet your listeners don't know about. Morris Strong died in 2015. He was the grandfather of the father of the climate con. He was a UN bureaucrat. He was uh, a wealthy man who went to the UN and took it over because he, he became uh, head of the United Nations Environmental Program in 1972. He formed the UN Environmental Program. He then realized the power. He then took it over and he became the backroom party man, backroom power broker who drove the UN. And Morris Strong is the one who concocted all of the, all of the, uh, the stealing of property rights around the world, the stealing of um, water uh, through the United Nations environmental programs, the destruction of energy, the overregulation, the control of people's freedom, which means control, an end of freedom, uh, the control of the way people will live. That's what they're going on about. And it's all to give a handful of elite players who are in charge of corporations or make their money from corporations control through the corporations over our lives. What we eat, how we live, how we travel, who we interact with, how we're educated, what job we have, that's on their agenda. And this is not some, uh, some uh, lunatic British journalist talking. James Dellingpole is very well informed. But it's also the words of senior bureaucrats in the UN, people like the late Morris Strong, people like Christiana Figueres, Edenhofer. They've said this. This is, not, this is not a theory. They have said this. It's the richest men in the world who will make money from this. And they've now got people like Trudeau in Canada, Boris Johnson, um, Oh, the others in, in there, I've, I've just recently heard, um, and now Scott Morrison, all using the word build back better. That's their code word. This is not new. While the slogan this time to build on, on COVID uh, is new, Mike, they previously called it Agenda 21, the United Nations Agenda 21, signed in 1992 and paraded around by some of the world's prime ministers and, and presidents including Paul Keating, who signed it on behalf of Australia. Um, prior to that, it goes back to Edward Mandel House in the early 20th century. He was the control behind Woodrow Wilson. He got Woodrow Wilson into the presidency, controlled Woodrow Wilson, enacted many legislations that uh, gave, gave corporates the power in the United States through the banks. So this is something that has been festering for a while. Edward Mandel House developed the uh, League of Nations, which was championed by um, by Woodrow Wilson, but really driven by Edward Mandel House. Uh, and then after the Second World War, along came the United Nations, and we've had many programs from the UN. And now the latest, due to COVID, they're always talking about the collapse of capitalism and we have to rescue capitalism from itself. They don't realize, of course, or, well, they do realize, but people don't realize that that capitalism doesn't exist at the moment. It's, it's already socialism in most countries, including Australia, including America, government control. And so what they're doing now is this, they're jumping on the COVID uh, opportunity. They take every opportunity they can, come up with a new slogan, and now they're jumping on that and they're saying, let's build back better and recover and destroy capitalism because it's been bad for us, it's created COVID, and let's get on with socialism as we know it because that's fair You'll be happy, no money, no control, no, sorry, no freedom, no control over your own life. It's back to feudalism. I don't know how I can shut up on this because it's just so strong. It's back to feudalism. We'll all be serfs, we'll be, con we'll be controlled, and we'll lose our basic freedoms. In the, uh, in the US, for example, six corporations control 90% of the media, um, and that's from social to mainstream media. It's the perfect vehicle to get your message over, isn't it? Yes, and it has been for quite a while, Mike. I'm, I'm uh, very pleased that you're using that data. Um, I, I guess you've updated it 
for me it was the New York Times and, and the, the major networks, CBS, ABC, NBC, but I'm guessing you're adding Facebook and Google to mm. that as well, or YouTube. And Twitter, uh, must, don't forget Twitter. Twitter, Twitter, of course. Um, yes, you're correct, and uh, the New York Times was thanked by um, one of the Rockefellers uh, in the early 20th century, the 1900s, for covering up a lot of this um, and being a mouthpiece for the, for the corporates. Um, and you're correct. You're absolutely correct. And what they do is they brainwash people. They only give one side of the story. They put negative news out about the about free people. And uh, and so Trump has been maligned. Uh, he has been lied about. And and so it's just, we've essentially had one man standing up against these globalists, and that's Donald Trump. And we've had a war on Trump for the last four years. And now we've had that through these through the uh, destruction of, of the dem- democratic process in the United States, where we're seeing basically a third world country the way it's being operated by these Democrats. Mm. Interesting to see that um, if Joe Biden does get in, and the uh, jury's out on that one, I should say the court's out on that one, because they will get some, I think, some favourable rulings. You just can't break the law and there's too much evidence. But that's another, another story which we'll go into later on. But interesting to see that Biden would like to shut down America. Now, lock it down. We're going to save your lives. It doesn't do a thing, does it? No. And, and you can see his buddies in the UN and in China um, making a meal of this mm. because the country that has been most successful in the entire world in response to COVID, we talked about it before, Mike, and that's Taiwan. Um, mm. Similar population to Australia, 24 million versus our 25 highly dense, densely populated country, small island, easier for the virus to spread. Uh, they got earlier transmission into of the virus into Taiwan from China. They're very close to China, a lot of interaction. They did not lock down their economy. They did what is mm. sensible for handling a virus, and that is quarantined the sick and the vulnerable. The rest continued their work, continued their social activities, continued their interaction, continued their sport. And what they've had is an economy that's bubbled along as usual, they've had no disruption to their economy and they've had only seven deaths, whereas we've had 900. You'll never hear the UN talk about Taiwan, yet it is, it is the standout success story. But instead, we hear Biden wanting to lock down America, destroy its economy, and Trump is just now starting to get the economy going and they'll have herd immunity pretty soon. And America was, was in a mess uh, after Obama. He took it up and, and created more jobs than anyone has done in the past, and now he's, they've gone down because of COVID, and he's getting them back mm. uh, after COVID. And uh, Obama, uh, sorry, Biden will destroy that country. Often been said, and uh, again another story. Got all these things, but I realise you have to go to work in a second. Um, they call Joe Biden Joe Obama, and uh, obviously Obama is many many would say is the puppet master. Uh, what can we do to learn about the origins of COVID nineteen? Uh, isn't this essential to stop it from happening again? And if you go back to the start of it, to the China virus, which uh, Donald calls it the Wuhan virus, uh, our rel- relationship with chi- China isn't all that squizzy at the moment, is it? No, it's not. And it's because we had the temerity to uh, ask for an inquiry into the source of the, of the virus, as you quite correctly said. Now, we first started mentioning that, Pauline and I, and then Scott Morrison took it up. He, he's taking up a lot of our words um, he did raise that with the Chinese. The Chinese got upset and they're trying to teach us a lesson. But I think they're really teaching the world a lesson because they're teaching people how China can react. And when more countries get affected the way we've been affected, uh, I think you'll see a, a different attitude towards China. But we need an inquiry. And the best place to start that inquiry is right here in Australia. And then the second place is with our partners who are free, freedom-loving countries. Then the third place is the UN. But really, the UN has been an ally and a, and a cover for China the whole way through. They've never mentioned Taiwan, even though it's a standout. The World Health Organization is a crooked, corrupt, criminal outfit that is dishonest and incompetent and lazy. It's headed by, by a person who has links to terrorism. And so uh, we won't get much out of the UN. But nonetheless, I think it's still important to hold the UN accountable because the UN is the one that delayed the reaction, the, the response to the, vi- uh, the virus, and that enabled it to get out of hand quickly. But we also have to look at the origins of the fear, because as we point, as we discussed before the show, Mike, uh, the premiers and also the prime minister 
have made a meal out of this because they've spread fear amongst the people and they've used that to increase control and they've used that to increase political power. And that's what we really have to come to grips with. We One, have to stop destroying our country. We have hmm. to do what Taiwan did, testing, tracing, quarantining, testing, tracing, quarantining, testing, tracing, quarantining, simple, basic, proven. One final question, Malcolm. Uh, this is a bit of a trick question. What's, what year are we in at the moment? What year? 2020. Okay. First of all, you become Prime Minister for knowing that. Sorry. sorry. The second thing is, what is next year? 2021. No, it's not. It's 1984 and we're heading that way, aren't we? Thank you very much. We are indeed. You, you are absolutely correct. Thank you. Economic disruption, corporate power, control, governments avoiding responsibility mm. but wanting to wield power over citizens. Yes, that's exactly. And political correctness is so deeply entrenched now, not only uh, in political circles but also through Facebook and Google, that people are afraid to go against that. But, Mike, while ever there are people like you around and me around and Pauline, we will be speaking up. Well, see, I may get locked up one day, but you guys, you guys are fine. Uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts, thanks for laughing at my jokes. Thank you very much. There are the bells for the Senate. Perfect timing. I'll see you in the gulag next year. Biden for president. Maybe Trump continues as president. Well, that's up to the courts. The Georgia runoffs for the final two Senate seats will also be just as critical as the Democrats need to win both seats. Blake Christian is a partner at Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite. Blake, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Mike. What are some of the uncertainties as we come to year end with no outcome yet of the presidential and Senate elections? I think this is actually the first time in my my 40-year career that we've had this, and and it's really critical um, from a a tax planning perspective because right now we're pretty well settled that Biden's going to take the presidency, although Trump is uh, challenging him in the courts. But uh, the wild card is what's going to happen with those two Senate seats that you mentioned in Georgia. And um, as you also mentioned, if the Democrats win both of them, then they'll control the executive branch as well as the Senate, uh, which is critical to tax policy as well as uh, controlling the court system, you know, as much as you can control the court system. and so it's it's kind of hard for our clients to figure out, you know, are we going to have tax hikes in 2021? Should I accelerate income into 2020? Should I defer expenses into 2021 when they'll be more valuable? And um, so we're we're developing some strategies around that. But it's uh, it's a very unique time in uh, the United States for sure. What do we know a Biden admin will do with uh, taxes? Well, uh, they're going to go up. Uh, he, you know, it's it's really strange. I can never remember uh, anybody's, uh, you know, part of their platform uh, bragging that they're going to, you know, increase taxes. Uh, now they, he was careful to say, "Oh, only if you make more than four hundred thousand dollars." But we'll we'll see about that. Uh, so he he plans on increasing. Uh, ordinary rates from a high of 37% up to um, 30, 39.8, uh, 39.6%. And then uh, on the, the the real scary part is he's talking about a capital gain rate, uh, long-term capital gain for assets held more than a year. Those could go up to 43.4% from the current 238 um, which would be pretty devastating, I think, for um, you know attracting investment capital. But um, I, I don't, I don't think seriously that they'll go that high. But you know, I'm, I'm telling clients to prepare that they may go, um, you know, up up into the low 30s. Could the uh, the economy or the business sector take that sort of shock? Because it really is a shock. I mean, you, you plan, you plan year in, year out. And to have a, a curveball like that, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we've had a, a very, you know, business-friendly uh, tax system uh, since the beginning of 2018 as a result of uh, Trump, Trump's 2017 Tax Act. 
and uh, you know certainly uh, a, a huge uh, contributor to the booming economy that we had up until the time that COVID uh, kind of took over the economy. So um, you know it's it's yeah you, you know as you're getting at you know it's you know could very well really slam on the brakes on already a pretty fragile economy. Um, so I was on a panel this morning and, you know, the, the consensus on that with a, you know, a lot of economists and, and tax people was that, that maybe, um, you know, he, he, he won't get this through Congress, uh, even if, even if he controls the Senate, it may not come into play until calendar 2022. Um, so to, just to give the economy, uh, some time to recover, but, um, you know, as you said, you know, the, the Democrats have to win both those seats. Um, there's a lot of things behind the scenes that would make that a, a pretty, pretty tough uh, deal for them to get both of those just just because of the makeup of Georgia. But um, we'll see. What about strategies to maximize flexibility and tax impact, regardless then of the outcome of the elections? Yeah. So so just a, a few, you know, things that were working with clients on is you can uh, sell assets under an installment sale basis. And so you might say, you know, give me um, 100,000 down and give me a note for 900,000. If, you know, you can't do that with publicly traded stocks and things, but let's say that was a piece of land or you're selling a business. Uh, You could even do it with selling a building up to a point Uh, and you could defer uh, $900,000 of income uh, and the related gain on that until the following year. There's one caveat to that. If it's a depreci- if you're selling depreciable assets um, like a you know, building, um, property and equipment, that depreciation that you've claimed in the past uh, to the extent um, that would be recovered because of the fair market value of the asset that you're selling that can get accelerated into the year of the sale, even though you didn't, even if you collected no cash on that deal. So, but by making the um, installment sale uh, structure, you you can either you can elect out of the installment sale treatment and and accelerate all of that income into 2020 uh, rather than 2021, and get the lower the guaranteed lower tax rate. Uh, but you wouldn't have to really make that election until you file your return. And uh, if the Republicans hold the Senate and you say, oh, OK, the tax rates very likely aren't going to go up, uh, then you, you go ahead and elect the installment sale treatment and defer the income into, into 2021 because you're not going to have a, a tax rate increase in that year unless they can pull some uh, Republicans over on their side. Who, who knows? There's a couple there yep. that sort of waver a bit, so we'll have to uh, have a word to those. And the, the the other big one is that I that I talk about all the time is the uh, uh, the um, opportunity zone program. And again, you don't have to make that decision until um, 2021 whether you're going to roll your capital gains um, and defer them until 2026 or have them taxed in uh, in 2020. So there's there's a handful of other techniques like that that uh, you can kind of walk the line and not really make your decision until we know the outcome of the um, of the uh, Senate election. What do we know? What the Biden administration will do in the first 100 days, such as other policies that will impact particular industries. One that comes to mind is climate change. Yeah, that's that's probably their big one, and you know it's got a two trillion dollar price tag on it. And you know most people during the uh, the debates, um, you know, we're we're putting a a four billion dollar price tag on that. So uh, uh, Senator Kerry uh, will be um, carrying the mantle for that that program. Uh, so that that one's that one's kind of scary. Uh, not only the price tag, but just the the impact on uh, on businesses and things. I, I ironically, I saw I saw a post the other day that had a um, a, a recharging machine for um, for electronic vehicles, and it was powered 
by um, a diesel generator, and uh, I just I just thought that was about as ironic as it gets, you know. Uh, Donald loves windmills, or others call them wind farms, but windmill really suits it. It's um, and they say a, a windmill for renewable energy. Um, once you've installed the windmill and built it, put it on the land. Uh, nothing needs to be done to it for about 30 years. And then in 30 years, you have to build a really big hole and put the windmill in because you can't get rid of these, uh, these monstrosities. So renewable energy certainly has, um, I suppose, some. it's attractive to some, but uh, the cost-benefit analysis, uh, jury's out on that one, isn't it? Right, right. And, and you see a lot of those... Uh, they have a lot of them in Wyoming. There's a whole bunch of them out in Palm Springs in California. And you see, you see a lot of those not turning. And sometimes you'll see them, you know, being maintained, laying on it on their sides. Um, yeah, they're, and they're, they're just not very attractive, you know. Um, so, and they don't work too well at night when you don't get a lot of wind. So they're not 24 hours. Also interesting, if you could tell me, uh, in Australia, for example, and other, other Western countries, in, in the UK, for example, and New Zealand, the government has subsidies for, um, for renewable energy. If they were so efficient, why would they need a subsidy? That's a, it's an excellent point. And, you know, any, you know, that, uh, on the tax legislative front, you know, that's, that's kind of always the position is if you're, if you're needing to prop up a, an industry with, uh, you know, with, tax credits and things like that, it's, it's apparently not efficient on its own. And, um, you know, as I've said before, I don't have a problem with, with having some subsidies, but I, what I would like to see is uh, where those, those subsidies would be recaptured when that industry becomes profitable. I mean, you know, Tesla, you know, with, with all due respect to Elon Musk, um, he's built a, a you know fantastic uh, company, but at the same time, all of those tax credits um, on those cars, seventy five hundred, and you know all sorts of, of different uh, numbers for different models uh, that were given out, and not you know, and these were wealthy people buying these vehicles for the most part, didn't really need to necessarily incentivize those, but now. When he sold millions of cars, maybe they should be clawing back some of those those credits and, and putting a surcharge on on uh, some of these. Mm. What about his other priority initiatives? Um, will they impact the economy and employment, such as COVID nineteen, uh, immigration, citizenship for illegals? List goes on. Yeah. So you know, and pol- police reform and. Um, and so on. So, um, I mean, a lot of the COVID related items are, are things that, um, you know, are, are right out of Trump's playbook. Uh, you know, obviously he has, you know, he says he's going to rely more on the, on the science and things. And so, um, but you know, for the most part, the, the rollout of the vaccines and all those types of things, obviously those are, are well underway. And, um, you know, by the time he takes office, I don't know if it's going to make a whole lot of sense for him to to change direction on how those are going to be distributed and things. I know uh, Kamala Harris is uh, is in charge of some uh, um, some ethnic um, elements uh, to make sure that the um, um, that the inoculations are you know go to. Uh, some of the the harder hit, obviously, the African Americans and, and Hispanics uh, were hit a little little bit harder, and their mortality rates are are higher. And so they, you know, clearly want to get um, the vaccines out to to those subgroups uh, a little more quickly, along with the elderly. Um, and those those are all good, um, but um, you know, the, it's and. It, it, you know, the, they're all they're all going to be, um, you know, all these programs are going to going to going to cost money, and um, you know, and that that's that's where the tax hikes come in. So uh, there'll there'll definitely be some uh, redistributions of wealth uh, through through this process. If somebody wants to find out more about opportunity zones or future taxation headaches, how do, how do they contact Blake Christian? So uh, the easiest way is just just Google Blake Christian CPA. 
Uh, our firm website, Holthouse Carlin and Van Trade, is www.hcbt.com. Fabulous. Uh, again next week, uh, Blake Christian from Holthouse Carlin and Van Trite. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Dr. Joshi is a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation known as ORF in New Delhi. He has been a journalist specialising on national and international politics and is a commentator and columnist on these issues. Dr. Joshi, welcome. Thank you. You recently wrote about Biden's China policy and direction it may take. What do we know about Joe Biden's attitude and likely approach to China? You know, I think we know for certain that Biden's approach will be different. That's what we can say. In his campaign in May 2019, uh, at To start with, he refused to see China as a major adversary. And he said that the scare stories about China were not accurate. And in any case, he felt there were no competition for the U.S. See, but as the campaign developed, he he started avoiding direct comment of that kind because he became aware that the notion of the China threat had taken root in important segments of the electorate. So Biden, of course, was influenced by the Obama administration experience of engagement with China uh, and had to, uh, you know, sort of recant in his views as the campaign developed. And as I said, that uh, in between, uh, you know, in when in in the Obama period, he had actually gone to China, spent a long time, uh, built up a relationship with Xi Jinping. And then later in the campaign, he actually called Xi a thug. Now, his policy is likely to be a mix of Trump's wariness of China, along with cautiousness in taking on China frontally. And then, of course, there is trade. The issue will complicate his approach. Uh, Remember, he was party to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mm -hmm. uh, which Trump walked out of, and its members formed the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, They would like the U.S. back. But uh, decoupling in high-tech areas will not change. So, you know, there's a big mess there, walking out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the decoupling, the tariffs. Uh, He'll have to um, uh, untangle uh, some of those issues. Uh, But one thing he'll be harsh on is human rights, uh, especially developments in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Uh, But at the same time, he's also aware, uh, because he is um, going to be a globalist, Uh, of the Obama style of the uh, liberal democratic uh, globalist. So he's also aware he would need China's cooperation. See, on issues uh, like climate change, new global trading regime, dealing with pandemics, etc. So this is, uh, he would have have to balance his policy, uh, uh, you know, between these issues. What can we glean from uh, Biden's close aides and foreign policy advisors? Well, uh, Biden and Harris, they're inclined towards muscular liberalism. We can see continued pressure on China, as I said, on this. But he's unlikely to make the mistake of the Obama administration not taking a tough line to China. Now, the thing with the AIDS uh, 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 AIDS is that people like Anthony Blinken, who's just been appointed to the State Department, he'll reflect... Biden's views and vice versa. The interesting thing is that many of the aides uh, who have been appointed uh, actually served in the Obama administration at number two, number three kind of positions. So in a sense, yes, they have a kind of a common uh, worldview, but I think they are also acutely aware uh, that they made mistakes. And I think the other day I I read Blinken himself uh, has said that we are not unaware of you know, what's happened in the past five years. So the the approach will be uh, somewhat different. You know, now Blinken, of course, was advisor to Biden in the uh, on foreign policy in the campaign. Uh, Blinken has described China as a competitor of the U.S., criticized the Trump administration policy on China for leaving out U.S. allies. You know, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership issue. Uh, however, last September... He also said that decoupling with China was unrealistic. Now, he has realized um, Biden has uh, also relied on professionals like Avril Haines for the DNI. 
Now, she served as the CIA deputy director and deputy national security advisor under Obama. Then his UN ambassador, uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield, is a 35-year-old veteran of the Foreign Service and headed the Africa Bureau uh, during Obama period. And Jake Sullivan, his NSA, uh, was head of the Department of State Policy Planning Department. And before that, he served as Biden's national security advisor when he was vice president. So all of them, uh, I think, as I said, one thing common is they were many of them were with the Obama administration, are aware of the uh, problems that occurred, have learned lessons, I think. And they are also, all of them do believe in coalition building and relying on allies. What are the uh, most pressing issues in the uh, US-China relationship? I think immediately it is this whole tariff mess. Virtually all Chinese exports are facing additional tariff. Uh, uh, many companies require license to import US high-tech products. See, but um, uh, there is also this whole issue of decoupling, meaning the mood uh, in the United States, meaning the whole Trump success was on the basis, uh, was on the belief that China had sucked away manufacturing from the US. And they had lost jobs or lost status, lost incomes uh, because of China. So I think these are things which uh, Biden will have to address uh, immediately. But of course, along with all this, uh, and they're pretty pressing issues, uh, come uh, things like Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, South China Sea. Uh, they are very compelling. Uh, I don't think it would be easy to ignore them. So these are the kind of broad issues that I can think of. Do you think China... Uh, regards now that it looks as if Joe Biden will become president, but you never can tell with the court systems in the US. Do you think that uh, they regard the US as being a little weaker or maybe less brasher? You know, I think they probably, they are realists. Now, you know, that publicly, I think one Chinese, uh, uh, I think academic has said that uh, Biden will be weaker. Uh, the point is that if, the Biden policy learns its lessons from the Obama period, uh, it could be more systematic. It need not be shrill, but it could be more effective because the biggest weakness of the uh, uh, of the uh, Trump uh, period was that they simply they, uh, ignored allies, meaning you look at Trump's policy in Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, you know, or the Europeans, uh, the, on the other hand, if you take the allies with you, you may not get uh, dramatic or stark results, but you can apply uh, pressure on China in a very systematic fashion and in a very um, determined fashion. So as I said, it, it may a lot of it may be optics in the sense Biden may not appear as shrill and tough. And of course, uh, you know, uh, Mike, don't forget that uh, the same Trump, who was tough and hard on, on China, uh, this January uh, signed a, uh, a, a deal with China, the phase one deal. Now, had that phase one deal uh, gone across, uh, the U US and China would have been even closer economically because they said that they would increase the trade by $200 billion. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is that that uh, sometimes people tend to forget that that the problem with Trump was erratic policy. So on one hand, he was applying pressure on China. So uh, Trump himself, I think, was only bothered about the uh, tariff issue. Mm. He had, uh, he was completely ignorant of how these things work. But he, it was that in his mind, uh, he had picked it up from the electorate. He was only focused on that. But it's his, his advisors like Mike Pompeo um, uh, and Mnuchin uh, and, and Navarro and others who are the ones who have been. Uh, sort of ideologically hostile to China mm. and, and taken up uh, several of the other issues. Trump himself was only concerned about tariffs. Now, I uh, want to know what the paradox would have been had COVID not come and Chinese fulfilled the phase one uh, deal. You know, the US and the China trade would have increased many times. Interesting with COVID, uh, just thinking uh, this is a, a sidebar issue, sliding doors. If COVID hadn't have happened, I... Who knows what the result would have been now? Would have been a, um, I mean, you can imagine another movie 
about yes. COVID not happening. I mean, you wonder what the ending would have been like when I mean, there's so many, so much <laughs> unrest, but who knows? It's a, a great thought after a few red wines, I'm sure. Look, the optics that China supported a Biden presidency, what would China be expecting or wanting from Joe Biden? Well, I think, you know, that uh, the, the, uh, they would expect a relationship with the U.S. to be more predictable. They know that the clock can't be turned back and that the U.S. under Biden uh, will look at China as a competitor uh, and will want to check its assertiveness. Of course, they would wish that the tariffs are withdrawn the U.S. eases off a number of measures targeting Chinese companies, uh, as well as the the the, the uh, its um, uh, pressure on students who study STEM subjects. You know, so uh, I think these would be the broad things which the Chinese would want um, from Biden. Uh, but of course, then there are the issues like South China Sea, Hong Kong, where I don't think that the Chinese are really expecting. Uh, that Biden would be able to, Biden will be inclined, you know, to uh, undo uh, what has happened. Because, you know, those are things which, uh, for which China is the initiator, meaning whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's the South China Sea. So Biden, uh, the United States only rea- is only reacting. But on areas where the U.S. has initiated action, <coughs> I think they would expect uh, more predictability. And as I said, that the U.S., uh, the, the kind of multilateralist uh, approach of the new administration. Uh, there are areas where they would also like to take China along with them. Joe Biden's campaign received large donations from Wall Street and big corporates wanting to do uh, maybe more business in China. How strong will the pressure on Joe Biden to go easy on China be or walk back from some of Trump's restrictions in the commercial areas? I think they will be pretty strong, but not only uh, because of Wall Street corporates. Uh, Many measures that the U.S. has taken under Trump, including the tariffs, have actually hurt the U.S. more than China. Mm. If you look at uh, many of the top U.S. uh, semiconductor companies, 30, 40 percent of their sales are to China. Many other companies as well. I mean, say globally, this is a phenomenon. Like it or not, China is a huge and sophisticated market. And it also offers a huge opportunity for American corporates. It's not just huge, meaning sometimes it's the key opportunity in the sense minus the Chinese market, uh, they are in trouble. So I think Biden will finesse a policy which will seek gain for U.S. corporates but without letting up pressure on the technology front. So I think, uh, you know, there will be a, a more uh, uh, precise policy. Uh, I don't think they'll use a heavy uh, hand on this. But nevertheless, I think um, uh, this policy of, of uh, controlling uh, the flow of technology, because th- this is not an issue which has come now. See, many of these steps uh, were initiated by the Obama administration. The problem is that the Obama administration, for example, the Obama administration had an agreement with China on cybersecurity, that China that um, China will uh, stop its cybersecurity cyber intrusions, and uh, the Chinese, as soon as Obama left, the Chinese restarted. So there are many issues which were initiated at that time. So many issues to which Joe Biden and his advisors are very familiar with and are committed to. So I think we'll, we, we will see a mix of all this. And as I said, along with the what has happened in COVID, uh, the fact of the matter is the Chinese economy is the only one which will show positive growth this year and is likely to show uh, stronger growth next year. And this is the time when the rest of the world is in recession. So I don't think uh, they will do anything in a hurry. Uh, they would like to think carefully till the... Uh, U.S. economy gets going again, you know, uh, they're unlikely to take measures which will further create problems. Have you had any uh, any uh, further thoughts on what President Trump may do in the coming weeks to consolidate some of his initiatives on China? And could this help Joe Biden? Well, you know, uh, frankly, Trump could do anything. Now, there, was, there has been talk that he could start trade talks with Taiwan. 
uh, or place even more sanctions on Chinese companies. But the problem uh, is that this is not legis—he can't do it through legislation at this stage. So he'll do it through executive orders. And Biden, I think, will be quite prepared because uh, everyone is prepared uh, for you know sort of um, uh, Trump's scorched earth policy uh, in the coming weeks. So I think Biden will be prepared, and he won't—he won't hesitate to unglue some of it uh, using executive orders. I mean, mm-hmm. he would simply say, you know, cancel, 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 because and and that's how uh, uh, executive order means it's the president's um, uh, order. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, uh, Trump will certainly um, uh, attempt things, but he's got lots of fronts that he's looking at. And the other thing that Trump is looking at uh, is the possibility of um, uh, contesting elections again in 2024. Uh, uh, so. I think the steps he'll take will be uh, will uh, will uh, take that into account. Mm. And well, then, of course, we have the uh, measures which which uh, people like Pompeo, you know, now there's a news item saying that the United States may strike Iran. You see, mm. uh, so now that these are these are all very serious issues. And as I said, uh, Trump could do anything to complicate things for Biden. And um, uh, but this is something uh, which we simply have to be prepared for. What would you regard as some of President Trump's successes? Well, I think his decision to confront China across the board uh, was important. Uh, Things had been happening, uh, meaning the cyber intrusion, uh, technology theft, forced transfer of technology has been there almost since the mid 2000s. And somehow the, uh, the, the the world, I would say, I, I won't blame the U.S. alone, uh, was just simply unable to do anything about it. Now, as I said, that some of the things the Obama administration did try, you know, so um, uh, South China Sea, Obama administration began the, the uh, freedom of navigation operations. But, you know, it's Trump. Uh, his freedom of navigation of uh, operations were much more determined, much more categorical, much clearer. And uh, so that, I think, was a very important step. And then his national security strategy, which, again, uh, was very un-Trump-like in the sense it was a very solid document, uh, which um, in, uh, came out in December 2017, uh, which declared China and Russia to be strategic competitors. I think the national security strategy is something uh, of the Trump administration is something which uh, will continue to guide American policy uh, uh, for some time. So I think this was a success. Another success, uh, I would say, from the Indian point of view, is that he maintained good ties with us. Now, this we are a crucial pivot in the U.S.-led Indo-Pacific strategy. And uh, what is amazing is that uh, Uh, Trump, who had problems with allies and friends all over the world, he created problems. Uh, Somehow with India, the only thing that upset him was was um, some tariffs on Harley Davidson bikes. (laughs) And uh, Harley Davidson, in in any case, has pulled out from India recently. They're a lovely motorbike, but um, I'll probably stick with the Indian motorbike. They're much better. Uh, And not being the Indian Indian, that's the Indian from the uh, the US. Uh I understand. Uh, just, just a, a, as a, I get another sidebar before we finish up, do you regard the world as being in a better place now that it looks as if Joe Biden will become president or is it in a worse place? I think it's a better place because uh, I think it's a better place uh, because, uh, as I said, one problem was uh, Trump being erratic. I would say he had, uh, the, and Trump's, Trump's uh, ends where he wanted to go was extremely unclear. What kind of a world did he want? You know, America first is okay. But the point is that uh, all said and done, uh, the United States has become relatively, as I said, relatively less powerful, less influential, uh, economically less dominant. And this is a reality that the United States has to live with. So when this happens, the United States has to be better at at, at knitting its alliance systems and allies together. And this is something which Trump completely ignored because of this uh, America first uh, business. 
Meaning some of the stuff like with South Korea or Japan or something was completely unconscionable. Meaning the, 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 uh, these were loyal um, uh, allies of the U.S. They depended on the U.S. for their security. And yet they were being treated uh, in a very shoddy manner. And then his treatment of Russia. That's really suspicious. Meaning in the sense uh, the Russians have been up to no good all over the place. And uh, Trump gave them a free ride uh, right through. And I'm sure the South Koreans would say the same thing about uh, North Korea, that Trump gave these guys the free ride. So I definitely think that uh, under Biden, uh, we have a more, uh, see, the world requires stability. Mm. Because uh, you don't have stability, you don't have economic growth. And more than ever now, uh, with this COVID uh, damage, uh, you require stable, uh, predictable systems. And to get out of this mess, you know, and get economies humming again, get the trade system going. Because, again, that is another area. The global trade system uh, was looked down on by Trump, meaning the whole WTO. Now there are problems with WTO, I agree. Mm. But, you know, they should be fixed rather than to say we'll discard WTO or WHO. The same thing. Now, we, because we may be entering into a phase where we could have this, uh, these kind of pandemics again and again in the coming years. In that case, we need a WHO, we need a world body, uh, fix it, you know, rather than saying, you know, we are going to ignore it. Exciting times, maybe not exciting times, but very interesting times. The Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. We're doing that at the moment. Um, I mean, who would ever believe the world would be shut down with a virus? Who would believe that we'd all be in this situation right now, all wishing that this year would just go away? It's been a, an incredible ride to, to basically nowhere. We've sort of stood still and gone backwards, but we really haven't progressed in a, in a great way, have we? Yeah, absolutely. Look, a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, we must do this again. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Bye and have a good day. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today, Wednesday, December the 2nd, 2020. I'm Mike Ryan.